Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone. We are coming to you a little bit late tonight on this chilly Tuesday evening, and I'll explain the reason why here in just a few minutes. We have just four stops remaining on the cold case road trip here on the Murder Bucket podcast. If you are new here and this is your first time listening, or if you have been with us since the beginning, let me just quickly explain what the cold case road trip is. Over the course of 30 episodes, each week we cover a cold case in two different locations, from all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. And tonight we are on stops 53 and 54, and we will be traveling to Maine and Georgia. Now, I did recently realize that I overlapped a few of those stops, So, like I said, tonight is stops 53 and 54, and we only have one more episode remaining after this evening. But as always, let's do our weekend slash week recap before we get into tonight's episode. Last week wasn't too interesting, except for Thursday I stayed home from work because my daughter got sick again. She threw up at my friend's house right as I was leaving, so I decided just to take her home, and we hung out all day, and my friend Lindsay came over that day because she had a really bad day at work. She was there on Thursday and helped me work on my co-workers' Halloween costumes, because we do like a themed Halloween costume every year. So this year we are emojis. Everyone got to pick their own emoji. We ordered yellow t-shirts and I worked on all of the emoji faces. And I only have two left. So fingers crossed that we get them done by Friday because that is when we're wearing them. Friday, my daughter woke up with a fever. So I stayed home again with her. And she kind of just, like, chilled all day on Friday. She was super tired, not really interested in eating anything. She did throw up a couple other times. So I took her to the doctor. We got a COVID test, let's see, a flu test, and an RSV test. Everything came back negative. So then on Saturday, the family member who watches our daughter during the week Her and her husband renewed their vows for their 30th wedding anniversary, so we went to that. Our tiny child slept through a lot of the reception, but still kind of ate a little bit and danced with a few people, which was absolutely adorable, and I cannot wait for those pictures to come in because they're going to be the best, and I'm definitely going to buy them, hang them up throughout the house. And then Sunday, she seemed to be a little bit better, so we all went to church, and she went to the nursery, but the people in the nursery said that she was just kind of 
chill. She really didn't want to play, didn't want to do a whole lot, which really wasn't that concerning. I kind of just think maybe it's a growth spurt or she's teething or like all of the above or something. So then the family friend and her husband are out of town this week, obviously, because it's their wedding anniversary and they wanted to go do something special. So I have another friend of mine from church that has come over these past two days to watch the tiny child. And she brought her grandson. And she said, for the most part, the tiny child has just been, again, super chill. Threw up once. Maybe had a fever like one time, but it was super mild. But then today, she was coughing all day and sneezing and stuff. So I got her another appointment. Guess what? She has an ear infection again for the second time in like less than a month. So of course, we got more Pedialyte, got more antibiotics. She has to take those for seven days. But tonight, she's acting normal. I don't know. I I don't understand kids, but whatever. So the reason why we're coming to you a little bit late this evening is because, like I said, we took my daughter to the doctor this afternoon and they called in the antibiotic prescription for her. So, of course, I went to CVS to go pick it up. But the CVS that I usually get our medication from is tied to my work. So it's not like a normal size CVS. It's like really tiny, probably like the size of your living room. And they don't carry this antibiotic in stock. So the pharmacist tried to look at the CVS that was close by and they didn't have it. So they then looked at a CVS that was in a Target close by and they didn't have it. So they looked at one more CVS and they actually had a whole bunch in stock. So I drove over there and they told me that it wasn't going to be ready until like 6 or 6.30. And that would have been like an hour and a half for me to just wait in this store. So I came home and I worked on the podcast tonight. And then my husband went out and got the medication and came back. But anyways, enough about me. Let's go ahead and jump on into tonight's episode. Stop 53, Maine. Four-year-old Kurt Newton was camping with his family at Natanas Point Campground in Chain of Ponds, Maine for the Labor Day weekend of 1975. He was there with his parents, six-year-old sister Kimberly, and three other family members. Around 10 a.m. on August 31st, while his mother was outside washing off a pair of shoes that had gotten muddy due to the rain, Kurt was riding around on his big wheel tricycle. His sister was playing and his dad had just left to go get firewood. According to an article on MaryHillBergMedia.com, a neighboring camper heard Kurt call out to his dad as he rode away on his tricycle. He was never heard from again. A short time later, His tricycle was found on a small hill near a dump site that was less than a mile from the campground by John Hansen, who was a volunteer caretaker. He brought it back to the campground, not thinking anything of it. 
Kurt's mother then started to grow concerned when he didn't return with his father. She began to ask campers if they had seen him. When she learned that his tricycle had been found, she feared that someone had kidnapped her son. In the warden's report of search on digitalmain.com, it states that Lloyd Davidson, the owner of the campground, reported Kurt missing at 12.22 p.m. He reported it directly to Forest Warden Thomas Lamont. F.W. Lamont was directed by Game Warden Bryce Clayton to go to the campgrounds and interview Kurt's parents. F.W. Lamont went to the area where his tricycle was located and searched the area along with John Hansen and another camper, John Walker. The three of them walked up and down the roads in the area looking for any sort of human or vehicle tracks. Their search covered about five miles. G.W. Clayton arrived at the campground around 1 p.m. and he immediately went to the dump site, stopping on the way to look for any tracks. He did spot small tracks, but nothing that resembled those of a tricycle. After arriving, G.W. Clayton informed the state police and requested their assistance with their bloodhounds. He also called several other wardens around the state asking for their assistance in the search. When Warden Inspector Lewis arrived on the scene at 3.40 p.m., G.W. Clayton walked him up the road he had already searched to look again. When he arrived back at the dump site, he took several other people with him to search the woods. The only thing found were two other tracks, but he was unsure if they had come from Kurt's tricycle. Over the course of the day, the area was searched over and over again using helicopters and many people on foot. Before dark, Kurt's mom, Jill, and another person thought they had heard a child's voice in the woods north of the dump site. Sheriff French also reported hearing the same voice. Everyone became silent while Jill called out her son's name for over 15 minutes, but nothing else was heard. Throughout the night, W.I. Lewis, Jill, and Ronald Newton continued searching the woods, calling out Kurt's name, until around 11 p.m. There were a total of 28 people searching that day. The next day, on September 1st, Corporal Tappan brought his bloodhounds out and searched the area. The bloodhounds were unable to pick up any scent of Kurt. He advised W.I. Lewis to proceed with his own search on foot. At 9 a.m., an area south of the dump site was searched. A helicopter flew over the area for roughly six hours that day. It is estimated that the total number of people searching this day was well over 200. On September 2nd, the weather wasn't ideal for ground searching, so an Air Force plane flew over the area. A large area roughly 1,200 feet deep on both sides of the dump site were blocked off with tape. Several teams were assigned to search a 500-foot block radius. They were instructed to walk the shores of Round Pond and Chain of Ponds. Many divers started their search operation and continued through September 7th. 
There were a total of over 250 people searching this day. The search continued on September 3rd. The road from the campground, as well as Otter Pond Road and New Truck Road, were marked off in 300-foot sections. The area totaled more than 19,000 feet. Teams of seven people went out to search the 300-foot sections. The helicopter flew over the area for six hours. This day, there were over 200 people searching. Over the next nine days, the helicopter flew over the area of the campground previously searched for six hours every single day. Every hole, gully, or culvert was searched thoroughly. If multiple groups determined that the hole, gully, or culvert did not have any evidence of Kurt, they were tasked with marking them with tape. Blocks of a thousand feet sections were marked off near the dump site and were searched over and over again by different groups of people. September 6 brought the largest search party. There was an estimate of over 900 volunteers canvassing the area. The campground ice house and area near it was checked with no evidence of Kurt's whereabouts. A National Guard helicopter flew over the area for several days. The Air Force aircraft used infrared devices for several days as well, unveiling nothing. Several teams searched the shoreline of Chain of Ponds and Round Pond, hoping that one day something would wash up. Many people who had search dogs came out to help. Every single track found was checked by a qualified team, and plaster casts were taken to compare them to Kurt's tricycle. Throughout this time, investigators never suspected foul play. They believed that Kurt left the campsite and possibly got lost. In an article on MaryHallbergMedia.com, State Police Lieutenant Paul Falconer is quoted stating, From the beginning, we never discounted the possibility that Kurt was abducted, but there were no facts to indicate he was not in the woods. State Police Detective Richard Cook is also quoted in the same article stating, With so many children available in the cities, why would a kidnapper come to one of the most remote campgrounds in the state, hoping to find a child riding a tricycle alone on a deserted road. While the local and state police exhausted all search efforts for 13 days, there was never any evidence found such as clothing, tracks, or remains. According to the Warden Report on DigitalMain.com, the following agencies came to help in the search. Fisheries and Game, the State Police, Sheriff's Department of Franklin County, the Sheriff's Department of Androscoggin County, Border Patrol, National Guard, Civil Defense, Civil Air Patrol, the Men's Correctional Center, Maine State Prison, Sea and Shore, Maine Forest Service Eustis, and Maine Forest Service Cupsuptic. A total of 19,507 miles were searched. 
there was a total of 2,093 man-hours that were utilized during the on-scene search and investigation. Jill and Ronald stayed in the area for more than two weeks before returning home to Manchester. They believed that Kurt was abducted and possibly taken to Canada. Two years after his disappearance, Kurt should have started school. His parents mailed missing person posters to every school district in the country. This took them more than six months and over $5,000. Many schools did reply with pictures of students that looked similar to Kurt. The police investigated every one, but none of them led to anything. Kurt was last seen wearing a navy blue jacket with baseball emblems, a navy blue sweatshirt, a red jersey, red and black corduroy pants, mismatched white socks, and brown high-top shoes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kurt Newton, you are encouraged to contact the Maine State Police Department. Before we head into Stop 54, please take a moment to listen to tonight's sponsor. Thank you to Best Fiends for supporting tonight's episode. As we head into fall and everything starts to slow down, there is more time to play games on your phone. And there's a game that I have to tell you about. It's called Best Fiends. That's friends, but without the R. Best Fiends is the five-star rated puzzle game that's the perfect companion while waiting in line to buy tickets for the pumpkin patch. And you can download it for free from the Apple App Store or Google Play, so you can take Best Fiends with you wherever you go. Collect more of your favorite cute characters while you're waiting for your hot cup of coffee, or soak up the last bit of warmth from the sun as you try to defeat just one more challenging level. Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels, so the fun will never stop. Every time you play, there's always something new to explore. Make the most of your fall downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store or Google Play for free today. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thank you for coming back for the second half of tonight's episode. Stop 54, Georgia. 18-year-old Justin Gaines was out on the evening of November 1st, 2007. He went to Wild Bill's nightclub in Duluth, Georgia. He came here so often that he had his own VIP ticket to enter. On Thursdays, the nightclub catered to a younger crowd, so anyone who was 18 or over was allowed to enter. But of course, you still had to be 21 to drink. Wild Bill's was an extremely large venue that had a maximum capacity of 5,000 people, and on this particular evening, there was an estimate of over 3,000 people in attendance. Justin was a freshman at Oconee campus of Gainesville College, which is now known as the University of North Georgia. He was popular and very sociable and could easily make friends. 
While he was enjoying his first semester of college, getting A's and B's in his classes, he also enjoyed partying. He didn't allow the fact that he was only 18 to deter him. He had two fake IDs. One by the name of Brad Allen and one by the name of Brad Shue. He would use these, like most, to buy alcohol and get into clubs. Prior to his disappearance, Justin was arrested in June after police found him drunk and passed out in his car. There was an open vodka bottle, which was also found in his vehicle. He was charged with possession of alcohol by a minor, second-degree forgery for the fake IDs, and for having an open container. His court hearing was scheduled on November 21st, but he never showed up. Because this was his first time in college, his parents didn't expect him to call home every single day. So when they didn't hear from him on Friday, they weren't too concerned. It wasn't until Saturday and into Sunday that his mother started to panic. She called the police and reported Justin missing. The police immediately pulled his phone records to try and track his whereabouts. The last time that Justin used his phone was in the area of Wild Bills. He made several phone calls and sent many text messages between 1.30 a.m. and 2 a.m. asking for a ride, but then his phone went silent. Justin never had a problem going places alone. He could make friends anywhere he went. On the surveillance cameras at the nightclub, he could be seen chatting with various people and did not appear to get into any arguments or confrontations. He was then caught on surveillance leaving the bar in the lobby with his phone to his ear. While he didn't appear to be intoxicated, he had been drinking. Police stated that time was their enemy in a missing persons case, and because Justin wasn't reported missing for three full days, they were already at a disadvantage. Because they didn't see anything on their surveillance camera, they didn't suspect foul play and wanted to continue to treat this case as a missing person investigation. A spokeswoman for the Gwinnett Police Department stated that the case had slowed down in the second week because several of his associates were uncooperative. Many of them were afraid to say anything to the police in fear of getting themselves or someone else in trouble because they were all underage drinking. The police did not suspect that any of his friends were involved in his disappearance. Several weeks later, members from the nonprofit group Texas EcoSearch came to assist in the search efforts. They launched a large-scale search that used ATVs, horses, and helicopters. Over the course of three days, they searched the area around the college and Wild Bills, but nothing turned up. After EQ Search left, his family and friends wanted to continue the efforts by hiring a private investigator and starting a nonprofit organization. The reason for starting the nonprofit was to help with the costs to put up billboards, flyers, and other items that would help in their search. Every single Thursday, 
Justin's family and friends were at Wild Bill's handing out leaflets regarding the case and leaving them on all the car's windshields that were in the parking lot. They hoped that these efforts would reach someone who had seen Justin the night he disappeared. Three months after his disappearance, Gwinnett police stated for the first time that they were working on several leads that seemed to indicate that foul play was likely. They gathered a wide range of items connected to this case. 75 of them had been sent to a crime lab for analysis. There was no specific information released to the public as to what direction they believed the case was going. They were extremely optimistic that they were going to solve Justin's case. Erica, who's Justin's mom, converted her garage into office space. She organized fundraisers, made buttons and bumper stickers, raised reward money, handed out flyers, set up a tip line, and maintained a website. His family believed that he had been picked up by someone that offered him a ride and was killed. On the one-year anniversary of his disappearance, his parents held a fundraiser to raise money to assist in another search. There were more than 150 friends and family that came. Stories were shared about Justin to celebrate his life. By 2009, with very little leads coming in, his case was turned over to the Cold Case Division. The family unfortunately suffered another devastating loss in 2011 when Justin's stepbrother Jeremy, who was 18 at the time, was found dead in his home. The medical examiner stated that he had been found with a plastic bag over his head and they were unable to determine if it had been an accident or suicide. Investigators made another plea four years after Justin went missing. They were convinced that out of the 3,000 people who were at the nightclub that evening, that someone had to know something and they just needed to locate them. There were some tips that came in, and if they did learn something new, no information has been released to the public. A search was conducted in the area of the Gwinnett Mall with cadaver dogs, but again, nothing turned up. The case went cold again. That was until Martin Wilkie and Dustin Glass were arrested on September 2nd, 2015, after Dustin confessed while in jail on an unrelated charge to being involved in Justin's disappearance. The arrest warrant stated that Martin and Dustin assaulted Justin in an encounter that led to him being shot. He was then disposed of in a metal toolbox and taken to a property in Walton County. Dustin's mother, Thelma, corroborated her son's story. She told police that she helped her son and Martin dispose of Justin's body by dumping him in a well in the High Shoals area near the Appalachie River. Investigators followed up on her claims by spending several days digging up several old wells on the property, but again found nothing. Thelma was charged with making false statements to law enforcement officials. 
She later admitted to lying to help herself get out of trouble. In an article on Medium.com, the district attorney doubted Dustin's claims. He believed that because he was already facing prison time in several different counties for conspiracy to commit murder, racketeering, aggravated assault, and participating in gang activity, that he decided to suddenly come forward with claims to knowing information regarding Justin's disappearance to possibly help him receive less jail time. Over the years, investigators searched several other places in Barrow and Walton County, but never found anything. Justin was last seen wearing a gray long-sleeve Abercrombie shirt, ripped jeans, flip-flops, and diamond stud earrings. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Justin Gaines, you were encouraged to contact the Gwinnett County Sheriff's Office. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to a promo from my friends at Anxious and Afraid Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Abby. And I'm Shauna, and we're the host of a podcast called Anxious and Afraid. Do you love deep dives into true crime? The paranormal? Strange history? Conspiracies? Well, so do we, and each week we take turns surprising each other with whatever anxiety-inducing subject we are obsessed with that week. Tune in each week to hear Shauna mispronounce words. Um, the guys on the lookout apparently asked for binoculars. Did I say that right? So the photos showed him and his colleague entertaining... (laughs) Wait, am I saying And listen in as Abby constantly asks too many questions. I was about to ask you a lot of questions. I'm glad that you interrupted me. Continue. (laughs) I would have told you to shut up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to do. Stop quizzing me. Okay, you know, I did enough research. (laughs) Let me just tell the damn story. Jesus. Continue. Episodes drop every Tuesday. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at our website, anxiousandafraid.com. We're always looking for new friends, so don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.